and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, this is a special supplemental edition. Uh, I'm your host, Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. And this is going to be Shroud Wars Round 4. Um, once again, uh, the audience is lucky you don't have to listen to me. Um, I've brought on two experts. So uh, we have from last week, Hugh Ferry. Um, and we also have a different Pro Shroud expert this week. So uh, Joe Marino, welcome back. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Excellent. So, yeah, um, we're going to have a, a good discussion. There's going to be a section on the dating of the Shroud and uh, specifically the Carbon 14 because um, we heard Bob Rucker's take last week, um, but Joe Marino has a different uh, take, the Invisible Reweave Hypothesis. So we're going to be going back and forth on that a bit. Um, as well, we're going to discuss image-forming mechanisms, um, and then we're going to get into the final topic, which I'm excited to discuss because uh, we, I haven't done a shroud debate on the forensic or medical evidence specifically, so so that's going to be something new for for the audience to hear a debate uh, on that. Um, so yeah, uh, we'll get straight into it. Uh, just in terms of a basic introduction, um, Hugh Ferry, why don't we start with you? Why don't you give us sort of an introduction as to who you are and your your uh, interest in the shroud? Okay, right. Thanks very much. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, thanks very much for allowing me on to twice in a row, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the other great thing about this is that although we, we expect to have a big battle here, as, as far as I know, Joe is another Roman Catholic. Is that correct, Joe? Um, I was born and raised Catholic, but I'm, I have no church affiliation right now. Okay, fair enough. But at least we're, you know, it's quite common to try and pit a Christian against an evil atheist with horns coming out in the tail. But at least we're both we're both quite conventional Christians, which is great. I could just, uh, for the benefit of people who, who weren't listening last time, I've been a Catholic science teacher at a Catholic school uh, in England for 40 years. I was uh, editor of the newsletter for the British Society for the Turin Shroud for uh, about five years. And uh, I've written a couple of papers called imaginatively the medieval shroud and the medieval shroud 2 and i'm thinking of writing another one i'm going to call it the medieval shroud 3 because i'm good at imagination i'm a skeptic yes i'm i'm the, the evil one on this uh, in this discussion yes I, th- I think one of our listeners tyler b refers to you as the shroud demon um, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, let, let's meet our, our uh, new guest uh, here in the, on the Pro Shroud side, uh, Joe Marino. Why don't you give us a, a bit of an introduction as to who you are and, and how you got involved in the Shroud and that sort of thing. Okay. Well, as I said, I was a born and raised Roman Catholic, um, but never actually heard of the Shroud until 1977. Um, I was agnostic at that point, and um, I was reading a lot of religion and philosophy, not just Christian, just across the board. And um, I saw a book on the Shroud called uh, The Fifth Gospel, uh, subtitled Is This the Face of Jesus Christ? And it had a picture of the um, negative face on the cover. And I thought, well, this is like interesting reading. So I bought it, and... Um, read it one night, and of course that was one year before the Sterp scientists went over to Italy. And just on the initial reading, um, I was fairly convinced that it could be authentic. And um, <clears throat> I started collecting um, everything I could get my 
hands-on, and I've continued that to this day. Uh, my basement is full of shroud uh, material, the hundreds and, or thousands, really, of books, articles, correspondence, memorabilia. I probably have one of the best two or three um, personal English language collections uh, of the shroud materials in the world. And um, I've, I've read all the major um, material in English. Probably the only thing I haven't read is some fluff on the internet. Mm. And uh, that's just hard to keep up with nowadays, of course. Mm. And um, so I, um, after I read the book, I started keeping a file of materials. And then I contacted the Holy Shroud Guild uh, for some slides. And then it, it played a factor in, I joined a monastery in 1980 in St. Louis, my hometown. And um, once I got to the monastery, I put together a lecture and um, started lecturing extensively in the St. Louis area. And um, I started con uh, corresponding with uh, the scientists and researchers. I went to my first uh, Shroud Conference in 1986. Um, in 1997, my late wife, Sue Benford, called me wanting information on the shroud. One thing led to another, and um, I, I left the monastery, um, married Sue later. We've done some research. Uh, we did some, what I think, some significant research on the shroud, uh, especially the C-14 area. And um, Sue, unfortunately, uh, passed away in um, 2009. And I've been continuing my work, and um, I think I've been to 10 conferences, and the one coming up in Canada in August, well, I think will be my 11th, and I'll meet uh, you there for the first time in person. We've only communicated by email and on blogs and the Shroud Science Internet group, and uh, I, I like to keep up to the minute on the Shroud. It's just been a fascinating um, topic for me. It, uh, it grabbed me from the first from that first book I saw, and uh, it's never let go. Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah, and um, uh, so the Joe Marino mentions there's an upcoming conference. I don't know if anyone's in the Toronto region, but that's being held in Ancaster in uh, this August. So, um, yeah, if anyone's in the area and interested in checking that out, I, I highly recommend you, you give that a, a shot and show up for that. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's get straight into the first topic of our debate, and so uh, this is going to be again relating to the dating of the shroud, and um, this is going to be Joe Marino is going to initiate um, this topic and give give sort of in ten minutes or less give sort of your opening statement uh, about you know topics relating to the dating there. Okay. Well, um, originally Sue and I. Uh, thought that the dating might have been off um, because of what, you know, whatever caused the image. But um, Sue got an insight, I guess, probably in 1999 that it could have been a repair. So we started looking into all my materials since I basically had, you know, all the written materials in the basement and we, of course, could get on the internet as well. And we started to find a lot of um, historical evidence and then later scientific evidence that there could, in fact, uh, be a reweave there. 
And uh, so we put together a paper that we read at the International Conference in Orvieto, Italy in August 2000. Uh, that was organized by um, Emanuele Marinelli in Italy. And um, we had 30 minutes um, to present it, which I didn't feel was enough. But, and then uh, with a couple minutes to go, the Italian moderator said something, and I didn't understand Italian, even though my last name is Marino. And I thought he was saying, your time is up. So I zipped through the last two minutes and uh, found out later he was saying, you have two minutes to go. But anyway, um, I can kind of highlight some of the findings we found then and then additional findings that, that I have found over the years. So I've been researching this about 20 years now. And um, the Turin Commission, which studied the shroud in <clears throat> 1969 and 1973, there was a researcher named Enzo Di Lorenze. And in the report that they put out, um, he said, I should like to mention the impression I've received during the course of my examination, namely that more pairs of hands have carried out the darning than is suggested in the historical records. And when uh, Giovanni Rigi took the sample in 1988, uh, he cut some foreign fibers away. And that's stated in one of his books. And elsewhere. And then when when Oxford got their sample, um, Edward Hall noticed uh, some fibers that were out of place, and he sent it to a lab in Derbyshire. And um, Peter South of the lab said um, that it may have been used for repairs at some time in the past. And then we found uh, people that that said that uh, a medieval restorer could have rewoven the, um, the shroud to a standard not visible to the naked eye. And uh, Professor Reyes, who was given a sample in 1973, um, stated that the cotton, he found cotton there and it was contained inside the, the, uh, the threads. So you know, the, the shroud is supposed to be all linen. Um, and then it, there was a big conference in Paris in 1989, and the French C-14 scientist Jacques Avon was there, and um, he was asked a question about possible foreign fibers, and he said um, that he agreed that the labs didn't take the weaving techniques into account, and they didn't date the threads per se. And he, so he said if the weave was rewoven with threads from a modern restoration, uh, this would be reflected in more modern results. And we found lots of other evidence. Um, the uh, Belgian chemist noticed that the chi-square test uh, for the shroud was 6.4, um, and it's supposed to be lower than 6. And so the fact that it's higher than 6 indicates that the sample, subsamples did not come from the same representative sample. And um, a Swiss archaeologist, um, Maria Grazia Filiato, gave a paper in 1993 mentioning all the different types of um, mending techniques that, that had been performed on the shroud over the years. Um, 
Dale, how much? How long have I gone already? Uh, you got about six more minutes if you want it, and you don't have to go for ten minutes if you want to end early. It's up to you. Uh, well, I can probably go more than that, but I just okay. That's fine. Um, and and I won't be too straight. Like if you need a couple extra minutes, that's fine, no problem. Um, let's see. And then 1996, um, the late Al Adler, chemist for uh, blood specialist on Stir, said in an article or an interview. Um, so you can talk all all you want about how reproducible the data is, but you can't talk about how accurate it is. You have no way of knowing if the area you took the C14 sample from represents the whole cloth. That's an area which has obviously been repaired. There's cloth missing there. It's been rewoven on the edge. They even cut part of it off because it was obviously rewoven on the edge. The simplest explanation why the date may be off is that it's rewoven cloth there, and that's not been tested. And then in a later paper in 1996, he said, um, the papers, uh, the pa excuse me, the patterns are all distinguishably different from one another, clearly indicating differences in their chemical composition. In particular, the radiocarbon samples are not representative of the non-image samples that comprise the bulk of the cloth. Now, in 1998, and there was a exhibition in Turin that year, as well as a, a scientific congress. The um, scientific advisor to the Cardinal at the time, Cardinal Paletto, had just come out or wrote a book around 19, booklet in 1998, uh, Savarino. Um, anyway, the, the advisor said that uh, the testing might have been erroneous due to, and this is a quote, extraneous thread left over from invisible mending routinely carried out in the past on parts of the cloth in poor repair. End quote. And then he went on to emphasize, if the sample taken had been the subject of invisible mending, the carbon dating results would not be reliable. What is more, the site from which the samples actually were taken does not preclude this hypothesis. End quote. And then Adler presented a paper in 1999 at the Richmond Congress, uh, which indicated that the C14 sample area and um, had different chemical characteristics than the rest of the shroud. Then it was in 2000, Sue and I presented our paper. Uh, Barry Schwartz published the paper on his site, shroud.com. And um, Ray Rogers, the chemist, the head of the chemistry aspect of the STIRP study, uh, kind of had been out of the shroud study. He basically had believed the uh, 88 results but uh, a new book that had come out at the time and also the paper that Sue and I did kind of drew him out of retirement. And uh, Ray was kind of upset with Barry for, for uh, publishing our paper because he called us part of the lunatic fringe. And he told Barry that he could prove us wrong in five minutes because he had some threads from the Rea sample um, which had been, which was right next to the C14 sample. And then he also had leftover samples from the main part of the shroud from the 78 study. So he said he was going to look at the two and then, you know, prove us wrong in five minutes. And he ended up calling Barry back about an hour and a half later and said, I can't believe it. I think they're right. So we started, um, 
showed some pictures to um, textile experts. We did not tell them that it was a picture of the shroud, and all three independently said that there were indications of repairs there. Um, and then Sue and I continued our research, and we found a technique known in France in the, in the medieval time called French Invisible Reweaving. And it was, the shroud was owned by Margaret of Savoy at the time. And she had access to the best weavers in Europe at that time. I also now own three different manuals showing how French Invisible Reweaving is done. Um, there's a gentleman named Robert Budin who was the uh, president of something called Tapestries and Treasures, uh, which produced imported, exported uh, high-quality tapestries, including 16th-century pieces. And we asked him if a 16th-century weaver possessed the skill to invisibly repair textiles, and he said most definitely. And then Thomas Campbell of the Metropolitan Museum of Art said the 16th century weavers were magicians. Around 2003, Barry published some photos of uh, some photographs Stirk took called the Blue Quad Mosaics. The guy who took the picture, John Lohr, uh, says that the different colors show different chemistries. And the uh, C14 area uh, shows a different chemistry than the main part of the shroud. Then in late 2003, Rogers received a leftover piece of the C14 sample, and I know the provenance or the chain of custody has been questioned, but I've got an email from him saying how he got it, and the chain of custody is strong. So he definitely had a, C, a leftover C14 sample, and he found the same characteristics in that that he did in the Reyes sample. Um, and he found the gum and the dye and the cotton, all things pointing toward a reweave. And then in 2005, he published his paper in Thermochemica Acta. And um, he says the, uh, the area was coated with a yellow-brown plant gum dye, gum containing dye lakes. And um, he says microscopic and microchemical observations prove that the radiocarbon sample was not part of the original cloth of the Shroud of Turin. The radiocarbon date was thus not valid for the, determining the true age of the Shroud. And the Centro in Turin first kind of questioned that, but then they soon came out and um, I don't know if they got orders on high or what, but they um, then said that the, that needed to be studied more. Okay. Uh, yeah. Do you, do you have um, more to say or much more to say or? Um, just a little bit more. Okay. I'll, I'll give you an extra one to two minutes. Um, okay. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Then there's, uh, we, we looked in some websites and stuff, places that did invisible reweaving. And there's a website called Without a Trace. Um, and the, the, the head guy there is named Michael Erwick. And he said, um, today there is a modern time-saving technique called inweaving that would be invisible from the surface but easily, easily recognizable from the back. 
However, the technique used in 16th century Europe called French weaving is an entirely different matter. French weaving involves a tedious thread-by-thread -thread restoration that is indeed invisible. 16th century owners of the shroud certainly had enough material resources and weeks of time at their disposal to accomplish the task. Um, and then, besides Roger's findings, he gave his Reyes threads to John Brown, a microscopist in Georgia. He confirmed Roger's findings. Some findings were given to a nine-person team at Los Alamos National Laboratories, and they confirmed the cotton, and they, they stated they believed it was from a repair. Um, of course, there's much more, but I think that's um, quite, quite enough for now, then. Gotcha. And, and you'll be given an opportunity to, in the informal discussion period, you'll, you'll get a chance to bring up anything that you missed here. Um, but yeah, for, first I do want to give Hugh a chance to give his sort of introduction or counter to this. Um, so Hugh, I said 10, 10 minutes or less, but if you need some extra, to, you know, about five extra minutes or something like I gave to Joe, that, that's not a problem. So uh, yeah, go ahead, Hugh. Okay, right. <clears throat> yeah, I've been, I've been scribbling like mad to try and uh, to get some of the, some of the details down. Um, as a response to some of the things that uh, that Joe said, um, some of which are, are quite reasonable, and, and I mean, I thought his case was was very well presented, um, except that in some cases, I, I I'm not, I just don't, uh, I don't believe that that's actually what happened. I don't think there is evidence for invisible reweaving, which um, I'll come to after a while. Now he started with uh, five or six examples of the. Um, radiocarbon section was taken away and the people who cut it out or looked at it uh, found that there was foreign bits in it. I don't think that's an example of um, uh, evidence of reweaving of any kind. So for example, I mean Enzo De Lorenzi who said that more pairs of hands um, had a, a show in the patching of the, of the darning of the shroud than, than we've been led to believe or something. I don't know that we had been led to believe very much, but obviously you've got the poor Claire nuns busy putting in their patches we've got um either them or possibly somebody else putting in extra patches of at least from the fire nothing to do with the carbon 14 corner uh so put some extra patches because some of them occurred twice then you've got uh that lovely saint whose name i forget who restitched all the patches with black thread um because he didn't want his stitching to merge in with the rest of the shroud quite deliberately um, Joel probably remember his name. Um, yeah, yeah, Sebastian Belfry. That's the man. That's the man. So he put lots of little black threads dotted around the shroud. Then, of course, we've got um, Giovanni Ricci, um, who who had to cut away foreign fibres. Well, the thing was there that the rice sample had been cut out of the shroud, and it had then been restitched onto the backing cloth. And also, of course, the corner of the um, of the side strip has been missing and that's all been stitched onto the backing cloth as well. So there's a massive great rolled hem of all sorts of people's um, uh, threads and cotton threads which could have happened any time during the history of the shroud. Also it's quite close to the bottom edge of the, um, of the shroud which again has been re-hemmed, it was folded over, it was uh, uh, stitched gently in place um, in order to fit frames and all sorts of things. So there was a lot of um, foreign material in that area and no wonder Ridgie had to cut away all the edges so as to leave 
what he thought was, um, you know, fair bits of, of shroud, which was uncontaminated by all the bits which were fairly obvious to see that had been put in since. Uh, the Oxford people, uh, sure enough, they examined their piece looking for um, evidence of extraneous threads, uh, and they found a tiny little black fibre. Now, the, the black fibre that they found, and they sent it off to, uh, yeah, to Derbyshire to be found out, uh, to discover whether it was cotton or not. It wasn't a black thread. It was a fibre. It was thinner than a human hair. It looks more or less thinner than one of the fibres that make up one of the threads of the shroud. So it certainly wasn't a piece that had, um, you know, that, that was part of the shroud or had been used to stitch it onto anything. It was a tiny extraneous fibre, which, as I say, yes, about a hundredth of a thread. Then we had, um, sorry, but I'm sort of rushing, really. I could slow down because I've got plenty of time. Um, the, the idea, the thing about the cotton, now this is a real, a real problem, really, because it's, I don't know that anybody has tested enough of the threads on the shroud for cotton uh, to be able to make any kind of uh, statement about how much cotton there is in it or not. I do know that uh, Dr. Thibault Heimberger took a thread, and I, goodness knows where he got the thread from, but Joe probably know, spread it out on a microscope slide and specifically counted the number of cotton fibres compared to linen fibres that there were in that thread. And I think his proportion was roughly 15%, something like that. Or, and then also Giulio Fanti did exactly the same thing with another thread, and he got 5%. And then, of course, there was the thread that uh, Robert Villarreal had a look at, uh, because he, which, one, which he was given by Rogers, and this was the famous one that uh, it was said to have been spliced, because it was actually glued together with a blob of some kind of uh, organic uh, waxy substance, like terpene, uh, it fell apart, and Villarreal looked at both ends and said that both ends were cotton. So the amount of cotton on the threads, which have individual threads, which have actually been tested to find out how much cotton they've got in them, varies from none through 5%, 15%, and 100%. Now, I don't know whether that's true of random threads taken from all over the shroud or not, and neither does anybody else, because it hasn't been tested. So uh, the whole cotton problem is is a bit of a mystery at the moment i don't think we can learn anything either way um then let me have a look and see yes various people have said uh, oh yes it's definitely invisible mending and that has been my real bugbear invisible mending can it be that invisible mending is invisible if was it robert goodman you mentioned joe is he oh, the Robert B U D E N. Gooden. I've not got in touch with him, nor with Thomas Campbell, um, but of course I do know that Mechthild uh, Fleury Lemberg, who was an expert on tapestry restoration, uh, as we all know, is she uh, still alive? Bless her. Anyway, um, yeah, great. Uh, but she insisted that there was no invisible mending um, on the uh, shroud of the radiocarbon sample. She also rather hilariously said that you couldn't possibly have invisible mending because you wouldn't be able to see what you were doing because as soon as you'd done it, it would disappear. Um, which is which is sort of quite funny in, a, in, a, in an overall sort of sense. But when you look at it, you start thinking, gosh, that's right. I wonder how exactly it works. 
Anyway, if it's invisible, how do Robert Gooden and Thomas Campbell know that it's there? That's what I want to know, except possibly from accounts in books. Now, I have, as you know, got in touch with Ruth Gilbert, who is probably Britain's leading textile recreator, who has woven for me a piece of the, of the shroud to, um, to Vial's, um, I can't remember his first name, uh, Vial's specifications, the person who, who uh, quantified the exact weave and the number of threads per inch and all that's it. I've also got in touch with Hero Granger-Taylor, who is from the Early Textile Study Group. She's our British expert on first century um, medieval textiles and things like that. She doesn't think there's any sign of a invisible weave on the shroud. I then sent a little piece of um, handkerchief with a hole in it to the British Invisible Mending Society and said, can you Britishly invisibly mend this so that it's invisible? And they sent it back and it was very good. Uh, on one side, but it was visible on the other. And when I reported this in Shroud Studies, I heard about this wonderful man, Michael Ehrlich of Without a Trace, who did invisible mending. So I sent him my hanky, and I said, I've got a little hole in here. Um, I understand that you can mend things which are totally invisible. I don't care how much it costs, I want you to mend this hole as invisibly as it is possible to mend it. And I got it back, and it's very, very good. But on the back, it's fairly easily visible. And I published both those in the um, on Shroud Story, I think. And I certainly published one of them in the British uh, British Society for the Turin Shroud newsletter. The fact is, I will only accept, and I've got all these books, the, the French medi uh, uh, reweaving books, which clearly don't show that invisible mending is invisible. And I really cannot accept that it, there is such a thing as invisible mending unless somebody does some for me or produces some kind of evidence, a piece of medieval tapestry, something like that, which demonstrates that it's actually happened. Because I don't believe in it. I especially don't believe in it when it happens in one tiny corner of a piece of a cloth which has been battered away with massive great holes in it and stuck together with rather crude patches. Why spend uh, a fantastically detailed time repairing one tiny corner when the, when the big holes look as though they've been slammed together by a primary school person? Unless, of course, we discover that there's these patches all over the shroud and they've been, they've been mended all over the place. And I just find that virtually incredible. Um, now, I want to move on now to something which has puzzled me ever since I started corresponding with people uh, on and, the shroud. And, and I'm sorry, I, I'm, Hugh, I'm Hugh, just sorry? So, sorry to interrupt. So that was your 10 minute mark. So I'll, I'll give you an, an additional five like I gave to um, Joe. I've only got two more to go, I think. Yep. Oh, one more. Go ahead. go ahead then. Yeah. And that's because I really want um, Joe to come back on this at some point, if, if not uh, immediately. These famous, the blue quad mosaic photographs, uh, which were, um, there were four of them covering the two top and bottom of the body image on the shroud, the, um, the, the front of the head and chest and then the lower legs and the back of the head and the back and the buttocks and lower legs. And three of them look almost identical. They are basically orange and yellow and red and they have a broad blue stripe, a bright pale blue stripe across the top third. And they also have 
a sort of green patch down in the bottom left-hand corner. All of them, three of them, of the four. Broad blue stripe across the top, little green patch in the bottom corner. Now, it is said of the one which covers the uh, radiocarbon corner that the green patch is evidence of some different kind of chemistry, which it may be. But if it is, then the blue patch, which covers the whole of the top third of three of these things, must also be a different kind of chemistry. And nobody has answered me that, although I've asked it over and over again. If we put these four blue quad mosaic patches together so that they, uh, they, they have the whole of the shroud, they cover the whole of the shroud, we find that the shroud must have three large blue stripes, I suppose about 30 to 40 centimetres wide, made of a different material from the rest of the shroud, if the different colours actually represent different chemicals. And no one's ever replied to that. They're not even, they're not, haven't said, no, 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 well, I think it must be something else. They just haven't replied at all. And that's my, that's the last thing I wanted to say, really. All right, perfect. Um, all right, so so what we'll do at this point, uh, we're going to get into the informal discussion um, between Joe and, and Hugh here. Um, so, yeah, I, I mentioned we, we're not bound by time kind of thing, so it, you guys are flexible in that. So, you know, we can go up to 20 minutes or something. If, it, if we reach that point, I'll let you guys know that it's 20 minutes and then let you guys have a couple extra minutes if you still have some final words to say. But... Yeah, we won't be limited to the 10 minutes thing if you guys want to go beyond that. So, uh, yeah, uh, Joe, we'll, we'll hand it over to you to, to initiate the conversation and come back to Hugh there. Okay. Well, um, now this, the points I'm raising, this is I'm going to have 75 minutes for in uh, Canada. Hmm. And, of course, I have slides with it. Um, so if you can't catch everything now and hopefully... Um, after the conference, the, the PowerPoint will be, be available somewhere. Um, another point I didn't raise earlier in my segment was the fact that uh, the late uh, archaeologist Paul Maloney presented a paper in Columbus in 2008, and he presented a list of um, individuals or groups that had found cotton inside of the fibers. This is what he claims in the Reyes corner. And he cited uh, Gilbert Reyes. He cited uh, Sterp's 1981 early analyses uh, reported by their spokeswoman, Joan Janney. Uh, he had investigators of precision processes in England, Ray Rogers' 2004 investigations, John Brown at Georgia Tech, and Robert Villarreal. And then there's a textile expert from Thomas Ferguson Limited. Um, who in 2016 wrote a, an article that's online, and she says, yarns break during weaving. The success in identifying these breaks and fixing depends on the skill of the hand weaver. However, there are signs in the shroud sample that direct the notion of mending or reweaving of the actual woven fabric. So, yeah, at the moment, I think uh, Hugh and I might have some dueling uh, textile experts um, and I should also point out that uh, the Savoy family archivist 
You know, the king of, of Italy had owned the shroud up until 1983. And uh, the archivist named Carlos Avaristo wrote a book in 2014. Um, and he said, he's talking about the area where the sample was taken, and he said, the section could have been ordered or rewoven back onto the original hole, or else the section in question was substituted with another piece of similar cloth. And then he also says, also another fact confirmed by His Majesty was that it was traditionally affirmed that at one point in the past, the edges of the sheet had become so tattered as to cause embarrassment or criticism of the custodians, and those areas were repaired and rewoven using identical techniques, but obviously with similar yet newer materials containing dyes and other medieval manufacturing ingredients in an attempt to better blend the new sections in as best possible with the original fabric. So here you have the former owner of the shroud uh, saying it was repaired. So, um, yeah, it would be nice to get uh, uh, something um, concrete in terms of uh, an example, and perhaps we'll we'll get that soon, but I checked. Sure, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to accept any, I can accept the sort of repairs that people occasionally mention, but they are the, the rolling up of the salvage and the rolling up of the hem. That sort of thing has been repaired quite a lot, and you can see it. I don't know if you... You've um, spent a lot of time browsing Halta Definizioni's photographs, uh, Shroud 2.0, but they are fantastically good for running your way very slowly, all the way up and down, all the seams on the shroud, where you can see how they've been rolled, how they've been hemmed, how in some cases where they've been taken to pieces. You can see all the holes where the original Holland cloth was sewn onto the, uh, onto the main shroud. For example, the stitch holes are still there. You can see the drawing pin holes where it was pinned to its frame. So it's really detailed for that. Now, uh, as I say, I'm just not going to believe in invisible reweaving until someone can demonstrate it to me. Um, and I, my, 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 I, I should be, I'd like to try and get hold of, of Mr. Campbell and Mr. Gooden and ask them, where is there a sample of this? How do you know? And where is there even a description of it? There is, you know, this idea. How do you invisibly reweave something? Well, let's try and think of it in practical terms. What you have to do is you have to unravel all the threads for quite a long way, I think, and then you have to um, swivel them, twiddle them with your fingers until they come into just little bits of fluff. And then you get the new piece of thread, twizzle that with your fingers till it comes into a little bit of fluff, and then sort of smudge the two fluffy ends together and maybe roll them around in your fingers and hope that that will make a strong enough join so that they don't then fall apart when you try and use them again um, to weave them back together again. And that just seems to me, um, I just don't think it's ever been done. I don't think there's any evidence that it's ever been done. I don't think there's any description that it's ever been done. There's just been various people going, oh, they were amazing, those people in the long time ago, they had lots of time. But I don't go for it. It didn't happen until somebody, I'm like Doubting Thomas, I'm afraid, didn't happen until I put my fingers on it. Well, I take his point that uh, to this point, to this day, we don't have um, an expert example. Um, but, well, you know, I, I think it's, it's 
it's worth putting all, all the data out there and hope and we can hope that um, other researchers with the knowledge and expertise um, can hopefully come forward and, and add to the debate. What, what did you make, out of curiosity, uh, Hugh mentioned that nobody's ever responded to his take on the blue quad uh, mosaic evidence. Did, did you have anything you wanted to come back on on that front? Um, not really. I, I'm no expert in that area. Um, a, a lot of my take on the shroud um, is, is the weight of the evidence. And as I mentioned earlier on, um, I've read everything. And um, I think the weight of the evidence, and generally for authenticity, is um, more on the on the side of that it is authentic. Um, but I kind of, I, in a lot of areas that I don't know much about, I say, well, you know, the experts, most of the experts are saying this, and certainly for STERP, I mean, I get a little irritated when when people say STERP was. Uh, a, a, a group of religious fanatics mm. and that is simply not true they had you know a few catholics some protestants agnostics jews mormon um and they you know they did not go over there intending to prove that it was the burial cloth of christ they went over there to find out how the image was made and they couldn't even an they couldn't answer that question um which kind of surprised them but um you know, the way, to me, the weight of the evidence um, for the general authenticity is, is strong. And I think there's enough um, evidence for the, the possible reweave that we need to still uh, keep looking at that. Okay, perfect. Um, so just before we get to maybe having a quick discussion on some of the other evidences, um, Hugh, is there anything on the invisible reweave that uh, you would like to ask Joe about or you think we need to cover more? Just just one little bit, and that is that um, it's to do with the chronological gradient. So the invisible reweave, now I've, I've got in front of me a, a thing which Joe perhaps doesn't um, used quite so much now, but it was a very early picture of a piece of the radiocarbon sample with a diagonal line along one of the, 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 the herringbone spines, if you like, and the top purple edge is 16th century patch, it's written here, and the bottom yellow section is the original first century material. It doesn't matter, I mean, I don't think it can actually be just two bits of material butted together because there'd be no way in which they would join it would just fall apart they must be mingled slightly yeah, yeah. but it's very apparent looking at that spine that there is much more mending towards the middle of the shroud than there was towards the end uh, of the shroud which is why of course it gets um, it gets older as you or the shroud apparently gets older um, as you go towards the towards the edge of the shroud and it gets younger as you go towards the middle of the shroud. This is the principle behind Bob Rucker's um, neutron hypothesis. Now, you'd have thought, and this was brought out at great length in the, 90, uh, the uh, 2014 St. Louis conference, which I rather attacked, the idea that the, um, that the, 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 the reweaving on the shroud actually made the shroud look older, not younger, than it really was. Do you have something to say about that? 
Um, well, I know, you know, Arizona had dates 200 years apart. Um, all I know is that that sample was not homogeneous, and it should have been if it, if it was the original cause. So, I mean, you know, who knows how the original repairing was done and how much they did one area as opposed to another. I, I don't have much more to add besides yeah. that. Oh, no, 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 no that's, uh, that's fair enough. Fair enough, then. Uh, okay. Sorry? Oh, no. Yeah, oh, I think that's me done for the time being. Good stuff. Okay, and, and Joe, just, um, d d is there anything else about the invisible reweave or the, you know, the politics of the carbon-14 that you wanted to just mention before we move on? Um, yeah, I can say a bit uh, about the politics and the, the um, anomalous nature of the corner. I, the papers that you mentioned early on, um, uh, a former NASA scientist and I, Ed Pryor, and he's agnostic, so he didn't have a religious bent. We put together in two parts um, 59 pages of material that suggested that that corner was suspect at best. And then in 2016, I wrote a three-part a 75-page article about the politics uh, of the dating of the shroud, and if if you anybody that takes the time to read those, I think you'll see that the science and the rigor was was very suspect. And even if if my reweave theory is correct, and they happen to get the date basically right, uh, sans the the reweave, um, I think the science was so poor and the rigor was so poor. There, anything that they came up with uh, data-wise just has to be suspect because it was not a rigorous scientific experiment in the least. Okay, all right. Um, so, yeah, one, one other thing. Um, does anyone, in terms of other evidence outside of the carbon-14, um, do you think there's any good evidence that we can use to suggest the shroud is in fact older than the medieval period? Um, so, for example, Bob Rucker and, and Hugh were um, kind of discussing the art history and the coin, the numismatic um, evidence. But do you think there's anything else uh, that's indicative of its age? Yeah, I think Flory Lemberg was quoted as saying that the the stitching that she found um, on the shroud that matches Masada, and there there are other places besides Masada. But her point was, she says the style belongs to first century or before. So she firmly places it in first century. I don't think she did. She said it was compatible with the stitching. No, I've, I've got an actual quote mm -hmm. here where she says it belongs firmly to uh, the period first century or before. Well, I disagree with that because what a, she said. It's yeah. a, I've got it in a quote. It's a, oh, no, no. I'm sure that's what she said. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm disagreeing with her. It's a very simple stitch uh, for joining together two hems, and I think you'll find if you take your jeans apart, it's very much the same kind of stitch which is used for stitching jeans together. She's quite wrong that it's an odd kind of stitching. It's not unusual. It's simple and it's easy to do. Well, I've done it myself. So I, I disagree that there's nobody else that's ever done it. Um, all right. Well, then you can't that, use it to say that. She says invisible reweaving can't be done. I know, strange. You, what do you? That's the way our life is. Sometimes you agree with me, and sometimes you don't. Fair enough. Uh, 
One other point I wanted to bring up, and this is very speculative, I know, and this is another very, very controversial area of the shroud, is that coin on the eye. Um, you know, some people think there's a Pontius Pilate coin, and uh, what was interesting was that when they first thought it might be a Pontius Pilate lepton, which was uh, minted 29 to 32 AD, um, they, they saw the letters UCAI, they thought they saw those letters, and the part, the actual inscription on the coin of Tiberius Kaiseros should have been UKAI, but then they actually found, like, I think it's four or five authentic pilot leptons that have that misspelled C. Now, if, if the coin's not on the I, that's got to be the, one of the world's biggest coincidences that they thought they saw a C on the, on the shroud and then, you know, at first thought, well, it can't be because it's supposed to be a K, and then they find actual misspelled Cs. But I just wanted to make the point that that's another area that I would love to see more research on. Have you read the coin? In the BSTS newsletter. What about the newsletter? Uh, well, I, I did a whole thing on the laptop on that um, by by finding the um, the marks on, as I say, on on the latest on the Alta Definitsi Shroud 2.0 weave and showing that the the marks which are purported to be on top of the threads are actually shadows between the threads. It's easy to get this wrong. Um, the people, and, and over and over again, people have got it wrong, some of them making an innocent mistake and some of them doing it on purpose. If you look at the, um, the, the, the Giuseppe Enrier uh, photos from 1931, they're very, very high contrast. And when people looked at them and they found these, the marks, uh, the, UC, the UKAI mark, these marks are in white um, on the negative, so obviously they would appear black on the positive. Am I making some sense there? Mm -hmm. So you can see these letters U K. Oh, they should be Y K, but they were U K A I, and you can see them there, and they're white. And if you turn them into the positive, they turn black. But by comparing them with the rest of the weave, you can see that those black marks are not on the threads; they are in the shadows between the threads. In other words, the whole of those, those letters are idiosyncrasies of the of the weave, and they're not on the top surface of the thread. So they couldn't have been put there by a coin. And I think if you read my paper, you'll agree. I recommend it. I'll have to reread re re <laughs> Okay. Anyway, so I'm not keen on the coins. I'm not keen on the flowers. I'm not keen on the two crowns of thorns. I'm not keen on the chains, the hammer, the nails, the titulus, the four different kinds of papyrus writing that's been put there, and all the rest of it. It just gets completely bonkers after a while. Okay, perfect. Uh, oh, go ahead. Two thorns? Yeah. No, I, I, the things that people think they could see uh, are slowly go absurd, I think. Okay, and, and sorry, Hugh, just uh, what for the audience, say what was the name of that specific paper? That you wrote? Uh, that's Alan Wanger's book, Adventure. Oh, which, which one? My paper. On the on the coin, yeah, the lepton. It's called. It's in the last British Society of the Turing Shroud. 
um, thing, um, and I've called it something, and I'm just trying to see whether I can find out what I called it. Something like magical leptons or something. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Uh, so... Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. I'll email it to you. Okay, perfect. I'll, I'll put up the link uh, for people. So. Okay, um, so that's great. So, so let's move on to our second major topic here. And this is again getting into the image formation and, and asking really the, the broad question, is the, is the shroud image an artistic image? Um, so once again, we're, we're going to go to Hugh to initiate. Huh? Sorry? Uh, so yeah, we'll... Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> All right. Well, well, I mentioned all of this last time, so I'll try and uh, make it slightly different. Yeah, uh, try. Yeah, uh, let's let's see what you do. I, I like to see if you can mix it up a bit. But um, yeah, you, you go ahead and give your sort of opening statement. Yeah. Is is the shroud an artistic image? Oh, right. To my mind, the shroud was made by an artist. Now, um, I've tried quite hard, and I've I've looked at the the paintings that have been done by Joe Nickell's team and by various other people who've had a go at just painting the image on the shroud. And I agree with people who think that it's probably unlikely that without any knowledge of um, a negative uh, reversal, someone could have painted an image which reverses into what looks like a negative quite so elegantly. It's possible, I think, um, and one would like to get an artist who knew nothing at all about the shroud and give them um, a subject and say, can you pretend that a piece of cloth has been laid over that subject, paint in where you think it would make contact and where you wouldn't, and then see what result they got. It's difficult for everybody else to do it because if we know what we're aiming for, whereas it would be good to try someone who didn't know what they were aiming for. But on the whole, I'm not a painting person. A man with a paintbrush or something dabbing around on a piece of cloth, guessing where an imprint might have been made. Um, I think we're probably pushing our luck there. What I am fairly keen on at the moment is the imprinting hypothesis. Now you've heard this one before, and that is that you get a statue and you smear it with something and you cover the uh, cover the statue with a cloth and the, the cloth peels off and where the ink touches it, you've got a color and where it doesn't, you don't. The problem with that, of course, um, as everybody knows, is that if you wrap a piece of cloth around something that's three-dimensional when you unfold it things like the ears instead of being close together like say how close are my ears apart 25 centimeters they fold outwards until they're about 30 40 50 centimeters apart and they look stupid so for that reason I don't think the cloth was draped over a statue I think it was draped over a bas relief I'm imagining a piece of wood probably about I don't know four or five maybe ten centimeters thick which has got uh, a vast relief of the face and the um, body of the shroud on it. One of the reasons I think for that is that the hands folded onto the um, over the stomach onto the groin uh, are much too flat on the on the shroud to, uh, to 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 be folded over a real person. So I think if you get a vast relief, and that doesn't just mean um, like a wood engraving, I don't mean a, a blank piece of wood which has got some scratches in it to mark out where the, um, where, 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 the, where, the, where the ink doesn't stick because that way you'd all get an area of flat and an area of, of um, depression where there'd be no ink and all the, uh, all the ink would either, would either be there or not there, it'd be one or another. 
you wouldn't have any sense of pressure. But a bas relief has got real uh, curves and contours to it, so that if you press a piece of cloth down on top of it, the bits which stick out more, like the bones of the fingers and the nose and the brow, will naturally make uh, you put more pressure on them than you would on the bits down the side. And that way, I think a negative image um, could appear entirely fortuitously. So that's that's my my method. You get your bas relief. You cover it with something, you stick the shroud on top, you pull it off, and essentially that's where the image is. So you then got uh, the problem that the Sturk team found uh, that there isn't any, what do they call it, pigment or stains or dyes. They were pretty sure there was absolutely nothing on the shroud at all. They even tested it for dozens of different things, including starch, and I shall come to that in a minute. Um, and decided that, that there was nothing on it, and that therefore the image was entirely due to the yellowing of the surface of the um, of the linen, and that yellowing uh, that, that yellowing looks very like a scorch mark, but we think that it's probably not a heat scorch mark. I think it's an acid scorch mark. So um, the uh, if the, if there was any pigment, then and the pigment has been washed off, and the scorch mark left behind is what's actually caused the image. Uh, and I think that's possible. Um, I'm not sure I want to say anything more about that, except that the the difference in intensity of the different parts of the image, I think, is not so much due to distance between the cloth and the bas relief, but to do with the pressure with which the cloth was pushed onto the bas relief. I'll probably think of something else in a minute, but that's 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 how I think it was done at the moment. I, I mean, do you want me to go into why it was done like that, or what what was the point of doing it in the first place? Um, yeah, sure, uh, sure. I, I, and I would also say, um, like, so you mentioned like the hands being flat, but is, is there uh, what sort of the evidence that you think f that we have at the moment that favors this, or is it just merely a possible hypothesis to your mind, or do you think that? You have positive reasons to favor that it's an artistic reason, artistic image versus a naturalistic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, 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 there are, there are other reasons for thinking that the shroud is is um, of that kind, um, and that is because really because what, why would you make what's it for? Why would anybody do it? Hmm. And of course, the first thing we think about is um, I can't remember whether it was Teddy Hall or Michael Hattite saying, "Oh, someone just got a piece of cloth, faked it up, and flogged it." But I don't think it wasn't made as a forgery. It was not made to represent an ancient relic. I think there's lots of good reasons to suggest that there was there was no intention of making it a relic. For a start, um, from the moment it was discovered onwards, people said that it couldn't possibly be a relic because it has an image on it. Because everyone knew that the shroud didn't have an image on it. And so by putting an image, I mean, if it was real, then obviously it did have an image on it. But by putting an image on it, whoever made it went against the current thinking of the time. So why did he put an image on it? Well, this is what I've mentioned before, so I won't go into it in quite so much detail. It's part of a, a religious ceremony, a little trope that took place before Mass on Easter Sunday morning, when three clerics dressed as women went to one side of the church where there was a wooden box um, or, or even a permanent tomb there. Some, some of the bigger cathedrals had a permanent tomb. 
um, where there was an angel sitting uh, saying, Jesus has risen, take this shroud and show it to the people. And the clerics then went back to the altar and held out a shroud for all the people to see, and they all burst into song saying, Jesus is risen. So what did they actually hold out? Well, it had to be a, a sheet of some kind. And the sheet that would fit a large cathedral vest would be a long, thin one, not one that was like a shroud, which is more like a bed sheet shape. You put the body in the middle, and you wrap the bits around it, and then you tie it up with strips, and that's what a shroud is. Uh, that's what a body bag is. That's what everybody uses for wrapping up dead bodies. What you never use is a long, thin strip, which you lie the body on, and then fold it over. That wouldn't be any use as a shroud, but it would be very useful as a liturgical thing to hold up in front of all the people on Easter Sunday morning. A kind of yeah, an imitation shroud, if you like, or a shroud adapted to a particular ceremonial purpose. And then, as I've said before, if you're going to put a body on it, a shape on it, and whoever was asked to do this was said, you know, can you make a, an image like an imprint of Christ? It may have been um, a kind of um, enhanced Veronica. There were lots of places all over the place where they, uh, all over Europe, where they had the Veronica. Well, they still do all over the place. So, cloths which have the head of Jesus on it. So why not have all of him? Now, if you did that, you could put a picture of Jesus or a, a kind of imprint of Jesus in the middle of the cloth, but then if you held it big enough to hold out over the altar, you'd have lots of blank space on either side. So it'd be rather good if you could have two images of Jesus, a front and a back, and that way you'd make the whole cloth neatly filled with image and it would be artistically more satisfactory. The only trouble is that if you had a real body and you laid it down, I mentioned this last time as well, if you had a real body and you laid it down on a shroud, you'd put the head at the end and you'd put the feet in the middle. And the reason for that would be that when you folded the shroud back up over the feet, the head would be the last thing to be covered, which is what happens when dead bodies are covered with cloth. The head is the last thing to be covered. And if you want to have a look at the dead body and find out who it is, or identification, you just peel back the cloth from the head and it's the first thing to be uncovered. And then with the shroud, of course, that would be completely the opposite. But artistically, it would make so much more sense to have the two heads in the middle because they're much more interesting and the feet at the far ends. Anyway, so that's why I think the shroud was arranged like that. And that would be the point of somebody being commissioned to produce a picture of the kind I suggested upon it. Okay, perfect. Um, so, yeah, we'll turn it over to Joe now to give his... Uh, sort of 10 minute introduction as to why he thinks the image isn't or can't be an artistic image uh, outside of forensic evidences. Okay. Um, can I ask you, um, in your view with that method, does, does, it, does that jive with Barry's transmitted light from the back in which you can see the blood from the front but you can't see any part of the image? Well, as I say, if there's any pigment on it, then it's very, very fine, um, either that or it's been largely washed off. So you're just left with the, with the um, degraded uh, cloth and with, with no pigment. However, I will say that um, you can see through the back, I think you can see the water stains. You can certainly see some of the water stains on the x-rays, which suggests that they've got something fairly substantial in them, and I wonder what they what what happened to them. 
um, you know, where, where they got all their uh, density of material that can be seen both through the back of the cloth and on via x-rays. But, but as I say, I, I'm not, I, I think that I can't see any pigment. I've been looking for pigment and I can't see it. So I agree that there's not much pigment there. Well, and I also uh, would mention that, you know, Barry Schwartz mentioned that his uh, his father died I forget, five or ten years ago, and they met, uh, buried him in a shroud, and he he didn't say that the orientation or anything was different about it. I, I got the impression, and I'll have to get more clarification about this, um, I got the impression that the way they buried his father in a shroud was not dissimilar or not the same uh, was the same as, as what we see in the shroud. Uh, well, all I could say is that I've been on various websites where you can buy shrouds with your Jewish or uh, Islamic, um, and they tell you what the dimensions of the shrouds are, and none of them are long and thin. They're all sheet-shaped, as it were. So maybe Barry's father was buried in an unusual shaped shroud, but um, I don't think he was. I think it was a fairly standard one. Uh, yeah, you can look them up and buy them, I suppose. Jewish and Islamic people, um, you know, buy shrouds for, for that purpose all the time. Mm -hmm. okay. Okay. Yeah, and, it, and it's just generally, I just, I, I find it hard to believe that an artistic endeavor would just happen to get uh, negative uh, characteristics and just happen to get uh, at least quasi-quasi uh, three D or spatial encoding characteristics, and uh, that it can only be seen uh, best from 6 to 10 feet, and it would have tons of characteristics that most scientists find very strange uh, about the image. Um, and, and I might say, too, that I think last week you said, um, you know, a lot of people say that your method hasn't you haven't completely duplicated it yet? No, no, right, yeah, yeah, and and you also said that well, neither has any of the co-authenticity people, whether it be neutrons or or Fablegraph or whatever. But I would say um, you've actually got the easier task because if it is a, an artist, you should be, a medieval artist, you should be able to duplicate it at least at some point. Whereas a co-authenticity person who's trying to show that it comes from God, he or she is never going to duplicate it exactly. They can only approximate it. So I think you've got the easier job there. Well, I have to agree with that, <laughs> actually, yeah. So that's why I, I, gave, um, I gave Bob five years to sort his out, and I'm giving myself five months. All right. and, and is your image going to be a full front and dorsal? No, mine's going to be probably a tiny piece of material. <laughs> I couldn't possibly bring a full-size shroud to Ancaster. But I could bring something. Well, if you, but I mean, uh, well, might, invisible reweave, if you can't, until you do it, and we'll, we'll claim devil's advocate here, well, you know, if people, if you kind of approximate it, can't people say, well, I won't believe it, you, you do a full full-length front and back body image like we see on the shroud. Yeah, I, I, I think that's slightly dark. Um, people are always saying, you, you know, it, you can't, unless it's exactly reproduced. I don't know that anybody has exactly reproduced anything. 
I mean, is the Mona Lisa a miracle because no one's reproduced it? Or, or the Great Pyramid of Giza? Or, or um, the Sphinx? Um, you know, how many times has people reproduced the Lincoln Memorial? It's never been reproduced. Therefore, well, it's a miracle. Yeah. Uh, to reproduce the whole thing is simply not, not yeah. sensible. <laughs> there, there are similar things to those where there is simply not anything similar to the shroud. I mean, it's absolutely unique. There's no other object with an image, a, a clear, distinct front and back image like it nor. That, that, that's true enough, yeah. And, I mean, the, the, my point is that if we could show how it was done, we don't actually have to reproduce the whole thing. Well, you'll probably get some arguments on that, but um, I understand that uh, from from your interview last week that you'll, you'll have to run it by... Uh, Bruno Barbera, so it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting. That's just dead right, yeah. Well, I'm doing, I think, well, you probably know about it, because I have to write, write learned papers for Barry, Bruno, um, what's her name, um, the, 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 the uh, lovely lady in, um, who's interested in, in the archaeology of, uh, of, of, oh, Ada, Ada Grossi uh, is another one. So they've all got to get letters from me, or a long, complicated essays from me, beautifully researched. Oh, Flavia Manservigi, she's another one. Wow. So, uh, yes, I've, I've got my work cut out, I can tell you. Okay. Uh, oh, go, yeah, yeah, go ahead. that Tha uh, Thomas de, de Vesselo, yes. he, um, he's an Oxford historian who um, specializes in 14th century art. Yeah, he can, as a as an agnostic uh, has no religious bias. He says in his book and other things he's done that uh, the shroud does not fit in to a 14th century um, milieu. Uh, so I think that that carries some weight. Yeah, well, it does. But he only considered two possible um, reasons for the shroud being made. It doesn't fit in to the concept of the shroud being a forgery, because there were so many people who, as soon as it was made, said it, it doesn't look like a forgery. Um, uh, it doesn't look like the real thing, for, for example. And he also went into it in terms of if it was meant to be a painting of Jesus. So he didn't look at it as if it was meant to be a religious artifact used in um, a religious ceremony. And I think that if he had looked at it in that uh, respect, he might have found something a bit more um, technically, conceptually, and stylistically um, correspondent. Mind you, he's still around, perhaps I ought to write to him. He doesn't seem to have done anything else since. He's disappeared into obscurity. I had heard he might be writing a second book, but I haven't heard much recently. Um, but do you think you're, you know, your medieval artist, would he have really gone against the conventions of the day and, and uh, had a, a, a nude? Jesus? I'm busy working on that. I'm not sure that Jesus is nude. Um, again, looking uh, really carefully, and this time at some of the Vern Miller um, photos which have just been published in shroudphoto.com. Do you want to add that, um, Dale, to your list of references? Mm -hmm. On the, what's the website? Vern Miller's photos is where? Shroud, shroudphoto.com. I think there's an S at the end of it, you. Uh, I think it's Shroud Photos. Gotcha. Shroud Photos, is it? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll put okay. that in for people. Um, 
that's got a whole lot of uh, photographs which were taken by uh, Bernd Miller in 1978. And some of them are very high contrast and extremely interesting. And the scourge, what people have always assumed are scourge marks running down the front of the thighs, I think are in fact um, wrinkles in a, a, um, in, a, in, in a loincloth. I don't think uh, Christ is nude. Okay. Not in the front. I think he probably is nude in the back, but I'm not sure about that. Okay. Um, perfect. So, so yeah, that's Joe's uh, opening speech. Now, you guys have sort of been going back and forth um, in the opening speech. Did you guys have anything you wanted to say on this topic still or, or to discuss about this, or did you guys want to move on to the forensic medical evidences? Um, yeah. I'm happy to move on, unless Joe wants to say something. I just want to more things. I, I uh, also want to point out that there was a British uh, sculptor named Leo Valla in the 60s who, I believe he was agnostic. Um, he believed the, the shroud image couldn't be faked. So and I think all these people that are, you know, are not Christians. Um, what, what, on what grounds? I mean, just because he didn't think of it? Or was he an expert in something? He was, a, he was an expert sculptor. Ah, right, yeah. Yeah. I think he wrote a few articles um, in the in the '60s or something, or there were at least a couple couple articles about his findings. I think maybe they quoted them. I haven't read those in eons, but um, V A V A L A. Yes, Leo Valla. I'll see if I oh, yeah. Hey, uh, that's a new one on me. I think I'll have to look him up. Thanks for referencing it. Sure. Um, I just, you know, just generally, again, um, if, if an artist was talented enough to come up with the shroud that he did, I, I find it a bit amazing that he did it and then just sort of disappeared from history and we don't even know who it was. Uh, you know, I just, I just think it makes more sense that people, you know, that it's authentic and people hit it because of that and it was, you know, it lays low in history during certain periods and only a few, few people have access to it. Um, I just think there's just too many barriers for a medieval yeah. artist to, to come up with that and fool 20th and 21st century scientists, doctors, and researchers. Uh, yeah, well, there's, there's, there's a point there, but I think it's because uh, I think it's because he's been approached in the wrong way. I think people have thought, here is an artist, he produces a piece of art. And I don't think it was like that. If you look at uh, all the artists, all the artists in Europe, if you like, um, who produced some fantastic works of art, especially in large churches uh, throughout Europe, nine times out of ten, they have no name. We just don't know who produced some of the greatest artworks in medieval Europe. They're always called the master of something or other, or the sculptor of this. There are a few important ones, and they were probably important because they were um, working at, in uh, either uh, the Vatican or Avignon when the Pope moved there, or for royal courts, people like that. But for, for artists all over quite uh, slightly second-rank cathedrals or something like that, we don't know their names. They just painted stuff because they were told to paint stuff. I think the idea, the idea, the other thing is that, is that artists didn't have a studio in which they sat and they said, look, I've produced something, so I'm going to produce another one and another one and another one. 
um, they were paid by the bishop or the diocese or the church, and he said, right, we want a statue of Our Lady. Uh, can you run one up? You've got a month to do it. So they would set off and do that. And then when they'd finished that, someone would go, right, we want this cloth for Easter. Can you put a, an image on the cloth? So we went, oh, right, yeah, okay. How would you like to do it? I'll, I'll do it like an imprint. Is that okay? And they went, yeah, do that. So he did that, and then he moved on to something else. You know, they did what they were told, carving um, uh, sculptors and things like that. A lot of them would do, would do all of it, sculpting and painting and leatherwork and all the rest of it, because that's what their job was. They, were, they, they didn't even think of themselves as artists most of the time. The word artist is quite a modern word in terms of producing works of art. They would have called, thought of themselves as craftsmen. Okay, um, perfect. All right, so, so yeah, I think we can move on at this point to the final topic. And this is the one, as I said, I'm, I'm most looking forward to this one because it's something that we haven't really done before in a, in a discussion or debate type format. So, so yeah, um, Joe Marino, I'll let you uh, initiate this topic. Uh, in about 10 minutes or less or thereabouts, what are, what are some of the medical or forensic evidences that we have uh, with the shroud images that, that show that whatever process formed these images, it must have involved a real human corpse? Yeah, um, I might not need the 10 minutes because one of my biggest arguments is just the fact that if you take the number of doctors over the years that believe it's authentic as opposed to the doctors that think it's it could be that it's a fake. I mean, it's like 99 to 1 in favor of the doctors thinking it's authentic, um, you know, going back decades. And in, in the modern uh, age, you can take those, just like two doctors, both of whom, whom are deceased right now, uh, Dr. Robert Buckland from SERP and uh, Dr. Fred Zugaby. Between the two of them, they probably did, uh, um, this is probably a low low estimate. They probably did 30 to 40,000 autopsies between them in their lifetime. And they believe, they both studied the shroud about 50 years, and they both believe that the, the shroud shows the authentic, uh, physio physiologically and anatomically correct image of a, of a crucified man. And if you've seen the, the Silent Witness movie by David Rolfe, uh, they quote, they have Dr. Buckland in there and I forget the uh, first part of the quote, but he ends by saying, uh, he's basically saying it's accurate, and he says it's beyond dispute. And um, it's just, it, this is anecdotal, this next part, but I think it says a lot. I, I was talking to doc, Dr. Gus Aceta recently, and he's a medical doctor. He has a shroud center in California. He believes it's authentic. He told me the other day that he has asked hundreds of surgeons and pathologists about the image on the shroud. And while they may differ on, you know, very details, basically they told him that it's basically medically, medically correct. Um, so you just, to me, it's just, again, it's the weight of the evidence sort of thing. I'm not a doctor, but when I see dozens and dozens and dozens of doctors saying, yeah, this is authentic, the blood flows are authentic, there's venous blood, there's arterial blood, uh, this matches to um, a Roman crucifixion. Um, there, there's a Dutch doctor that um, did, did a study on the medical aspects of Roman crucifixion.
Christians. I think his name is Franz Pifels, W-I-J-F-F-E-L-S, I think. And um, they found uh, the different characteristics that would happen to a victim of Roman crucifixion. And they listed about 12 characteristics that would happen to a man, and they found 11 of the 12 showing on the shroud. Now, I, I just I just don't think all these doctors are fooling themselves or, or want the shroud so bad to be authentic that they're, you know, not seeing, or they're seeing things that aren't there. I think the, um, the weight of the evidence uh, is so strong, and, you know, they got, you can only see halos uh, from the blood serum only under ultraviolet light. There's things on there that, you know, you need modern instruments. I'll never forget, I asked Dr. Walter McCrone at a conference in 1986 um, how his supposed forger was able to incorporate details that couldn't even be known for several more centuries until the right instruments were um, invented. And his answer to me was, I'm not going to answer that. He just did it which to me is not a very uh, scientific answer. Um, you know, I, I don't think he had an answer, so that's, that's all he could come up with. So uh, I've got, you know, I've got dozens and dozens of doctors. I, I, don't, I came across lots of names recently in different articles and stuff. And uh, there's only, a, I think, Dr. Michael Bodden from New York thinks it's uh, fake. Uh, there's um, one or two others. Of, there are not many medical people who think that um, that the shroud is a fake image. They they seem to feel that everything on there is medically, uh, anatomically, and physiologically correct. Okay. All right. Uh, and Hugh, why don't you give us uh, in ten minutes or less? Give us um, your take on the forensic and medical evidences. Why why do you find them unconvincing in terms of the shroud involving a real human corpse? Well, I don't think it's necessarily terribly difficult to produce something which looks as if it might have all the characteristics of a human corpse. And there's some quite realistic crucifixions, and it would be interesting, I mean, even before they were specifically modelled on the shroud, but it'd be interesting to take a good anatomically correct, say, Italian or Spanish, because they seem to make a, uh, do it really well, and take it along to a doctor and say, uh, obviously it's a wooden crucifixion, but can you say what's wrong with it from an anatomical point of view and see if they can actually point out and say well it's only got three ribs and it should have so many or um, that the the, uh, the length of the bones is wrong or something like that because actually I think people can draw or make very realistic looking dead bodies and I think that uh, I mean I, I, people have certainly said we've got a list of hundred doctors the number of that hundred doctors who've actually looked in detail at the shroud to try and find out um, exactly, shall we say, how the um, person was crucified or uh, exactly where the nails went and things like that, that's much, much, um, uh, that, that's far fewer of them. And when you start to find out what those people thought, turns out that the doctors all disagree with themselves. So, uh, if, if, for example, we start with, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned uh, doctors Bucklin and Zugaby, both, as you say, yeah, superb um, forensic pathologists work for departments on opposite sides of the United States 
probably the uh, the age-old battle between uh, Los Angeles and, and, and New York, I think. Um, there was Buckland who essentially agreed with Barbe that the, uh, shall we say, the nail in the hand passed through something called the space of distort, which is a particular gap in between the bones of the wrist, um, and had the effect of damaging the median nerve, which would slam the thumb into the palms of the hands. Now, here was a highly qualified, highly experienced forensic pathologist who'd seen yep, 30,000 dead bodies describing exactly how the nail went into the hand. This was followed three years later by Fred Zuggerby saying that Barbe in particular, but followed by Buckland because he, he, he was of Barbe's school, literally had no idea what he was talking about. That the nail had not gone in through the space of distort, but was on the other side of the hand, and that even if it had gone through the space of distort, it wouldn't have damaged the median nerve because the median nerve isn't there. So once you get a couple of doctors actually examining specific anatomical details, they all disagree with each other. So it, it, all very well going, yeah, yeah, but in general it looks like a dead body. Yeah, of course it looks like a dead body. It was meant to look like a dead body. The artist wasn't an idiot. He carved his bas relief so that it had the anatomical configurations of a dead body. But as to exactly what configuration it was in, you get two doctors, they'll do nothing but squabble with each other. They're, I mean, over the last five years, I've been documenting five different ways in which the shroud clearly shows the nail has gone in through the wrist. Um, not only Buckley and Zugibi, but, um, uh, well, Giulio Fanti is sort of in charge of everything that happens in Italy, it seems to me, he and, and Paolo, but one of his team discovered that it hadn't gone in through that side, through either side of the wrist, it had gone through another space altogether, and somebody else suggested that it was further up between the, uh, the two bones of the forearm, and somebody else that it was between the two middle bones of the two fingers. And all of these people were doctors. They all had reference to um, skeletons and x-rays and goodness knows what. And they all disagreed. So I'm not taken by um, necessarily the fact that a lot of doctors thought it was authentic doesn't, doesn't convince me at all. They may, uh, and it'd be nice to have got, yes, Dr. Varden and Dr. Zugibi to discuss with each other why they thought um, the different things that they did. The only, I mean, Buckley and Zugaby were outstanding because they were working professional uh, forensic pathologists. So the only other one who could compare with them, to my mind, was Dr. Bonte. I think it was Bonte, who was a German, who was head of the German, I don't know, forensic science department or something like that. And he, of course, thinks that the shroud, uh, what well, they thought, I'm not sure he's still alive, but he thought that thinks that the shroud is, um, uh, that the body in the shroud was alive not dead. Uh, no, or maybe he thinks it's a fake. Um, but one of them thought it was alive and not dead. And then there's the Spanish doctor, Miguel Lorente, and he thinks that the shroud, the body in the shroud was alive and not dead. But he's another forensic pathologist. So you get five forensic pathologists, all of whom agree that in general, there was a dead body there, but get them to start describing it in detail and they come to pieces. They can't decide how tall the chap was. At some point, they decided that his arms must have been dislocated in order to cover the groin. Other people have decided that he had, um, actually, Zuckerberg retracted that slightly, that he had Marfan's syndrome, which is 
the kind of gigantism in which all your ling- limbs get much longer than, than normal. So I, I, I'm not um, I'm not over impressed by the fact that a lot of doctors thought that the shroud thinks that the shroud uh, comes from a real body. Yeah, but that doesn't invalidate the the fact that they agree on that it's a real dead body as opposed to it's um, it's an artistic image. Well, I think they agree that it looks like a real dead body. I, I really doubt that. I, I in my old sli- uh, when I had thirty five millimeter slides and I gave um, presentations. One of my slides was a seventeenth century diagram, medical diagram, and it was so it, it was you could be on the floor laughing at at the at how bad it was, and that was seventeenth century. I cannot imagine somebody in the fourteenth century knowing enough about medicine to be able to incorporate medical details that fool doctors and pathologists and surgeons in the 20th and 21st century. Well, fair enough. I mean, I, I think he just did a, I mean, you know, people were quite good at doing models of bodies and they did models of bodies. But I think most doctors would be able to tell an artistic image as opposed to a dead body. I, uh, no, I, well, uh, yeah, possibly, but no, I, I, I think that I would, I would like to talk to some of these people, and um, unfortunately, both, whenever I say I want to go and talk to a doctor, I immediately discover these died, which is a bit unfortunate. Yeah, but, there's a lot of researchers that uh, I quote in my paper that I have to say the late in front of. Yeah, I have to grab them as, as soon as I can. Well, but you know, but you see my problem about the, the, the nail through the wrist. It'd be so interesting to listen to them saying why they think that. And if I was then to say, well, look, don't you think it could just have been splodged on at random and you're trying to derive some scientific meaning from it? I suspect they might go, yes, you might be right. A lot of the doctors worked from the assumption that it was a real body and then tried to derive how the blood would have got there, for example, assuming it was a real body. So all the, the, the people who were looking at blood, blood flows running down the arms, for example, so I wonder about 10 years ago, possibly even longer now, 20 years ago, was it Ricky? Not Rigi, but, but Ricky. Julia Ricky, he, he produced a statue, and they came up with this exact um, reason. In fact, we get to the, to the um, Oviedo cloth here. But he produced this image of Christ and how Christ had died and presumably he was working with best doctors of the time and it shows Christ on the crucifix hanging down with one arm stretched out more or less horizontal but straight and the other arm almost at right angles do you remember that crucifix? I think the two or three of them were made well now there are lots of other doctors who think that Jesus was in the shroud in rigor mortis but there's no way that that image could be taken down from a crucifix and placed on the shroud in the way that in the shroud configuration, having started like that with 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 so asymmetrical. Um, I remember Mark Guskin doing this wonderful illustration of how the Sudarium Oviedo was was wrapped around the head of the body while it was dead on the cross, and saying that. Uh, you could. They, they managed to wrap the cloth halfway around the body, but then they wouldn't get it. They couldn't get it through the head because the head was jammed against the arm because it had slumped down 
and in rigor mortis it was so tight that they couldn't shove the cloth between, or they found it was um, indecent to shove the cloth between, so they folded it back, which is why the Sudarium of Oviedo is, is a doubled cloth, which makes perfect sense for the Sudarium, but it makes a complete mockery of the idea that Jesus, why is Jesus' head perfectly symmetrical when it was finally placed in the tomb? Because rigor mortis would have jammed it over to one side. So again, you've got, you know, I'd like to ask doctors, if, if it's realistic, why does this doctor disagree with you? And so on. Okay, and, and Joe, do you, are there any uh, specific anatomical features that you think um, are inconsistent or wouldn't have been able to be duplicated by a medieval person? So I, in our show last week, Hugh mentioned um, Dacini, I think it was, a, a handbook, a, a medieval artist or a Renaissance artist. Cianino uh, Cianini. There you go. Uh, you got the accent right. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and he has chapters on how to paint wounds and that sort of thing. So we do have some measure of an idea uh, of what medievals thought. Is, is there anything depicted on the shroud anatomically that a medieval person wouldn't be able to, you know, just observe and then and copy and that sort of thing? Um, well, let's see. The, um, I think the scourge marks are pretty accurate. Um, they match to the ends of a. They found out the ends of a Roman flagrum in Herculaneum, and they reconstruct the handle to it. But the the images scourge wounds match to that uh, Roman flagrum found in Herculaneum. Um, the wounds inside. No, they don't. I'm sorry. That uh, that the the. Um... The, the scourge found in Herculaneum is only about six inches long, um, and it's completely disappeared. It was it was mentioned in a, in a um, archaeological dictionary from about 1850 or so. Um, but when um, Flavio Mansovici has done an enormous amount of work trying to find Roman flagrums, and of course we can't find anything that looks anything like the dumbbell-shaped marks on the shroud, and I think she's now admitted that they that all the there are one or two things which are called flagrams in the Vatican Museum but it turns out that they are bits of metal trappings to hang down from the harnesses of horses and things like that so no there is no archaeological evidence for those dumbbell shapes on the shroud at all the only two um, shroud, uh, archaeological reconstructions which are often um, presented as the very common photographs of a, of a wooden handle with three leather thongs and two metal balls on the end. And you often see people in, in um, uh, documentaries and movies on the shroud matching these balls to the, to the uh, marks on the shroud going, look, they match absolutely. But nobody points out that those, those scourges were actually made deliberately to match the wounds on the shroud. They have no archaeological justification whatever. Well, I've also read that the sign in the wound matches to a, a Roman lancy at the time. Um, yep, that does. I'll give you that. And then I think one of the hardest uh, characteristics for uh, an artist to re reproduce is the superficiality of the image. The, the fact that it's only on the top uh, one or two microfibers. Um, you know, each thread is made up of about 200 microfibers and the image uh, it resides only on the one to 
two top microfibers. I mean, that's a pretty good trick for a, a 14th century uh, artist to do, especially uh, over a you know six foot front image and a six or five ten maybe total front and back. Um, you know, the intensity is the same top to bottom throughout the cloth. Um, that's yeah. That's one of the reasons which makes me think that it's. It, that it's uh, more likely to be um, constructed than come from a dead body because dead bodies have all sorts of different uh, materials about them parts of them that are squishy and the fingernails are quite hard and the hair is stringy and that sort of thing and yet we get exactly the same sort of image on the shroud regardless of the place on the body where it came from and that uh, strikes me as extremely difficult scientific miraculists to uh, to explain why why hair should I mean even using the non science the, the naturalist miraculists why hair should have exactly the same quality of emanation from it as say a nose or or, 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 the, or the ribs or something like that it's the very evenness of the shroud that makes me think you've got a wooden a wooden uh, bas relief lying down flat you cover the whole thing with something and you put the cloth on top and you get the same stuff coming off. Now, as to the, the superficiality of things, I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm a bit confused about that in some ways. If you get a pencil and you scribble it on a piece of cloth, you'll discover that the pencil doesn't go through to the other side. It's just sitting there on the surface. Now, you'll say to yourself, yeah, but if you looked at that under a microscope, you'd have little fragments of pencil. You could see it. But... If the, uh, if, if, if the pencil or, or, or a thickish paint or something like that had, as I said before, an acid component to it, then it would just sit on the surface of the cloth. There's no reason why it should seep in or, or, or do anything like that. So once you removed the, the colouring factor, you'd be left with discoloured material underneath. Uh, so uh, why wouldn't it seep in? Well, it doesn't. I mean, uh, try scribbling on it and see. You'll get a felt-tip pen and just scribble it over a piece of cloth and see if it seeps in. Unless it's really wet, there's no reason why it should. Even wine's quite difficult to get that to go through. I was drawing a shroud in wine yesterday afternoon, as it happened, and I was surprised to find that it didn't go through the cloth. Okay. Cloth, it's very, you must remember that the shroud cloth is very, very dense. There's no holes in it. And that's, I mean, you know, people think that you get, a, you get a thing like a, I don't know, a dishcloth or something like that, cotton, and it's full of holes. And you put water on one side, it comes straight through to the other. You get a linen cloth, much more difficult to get the uh, paint to go through it. I've also heard that in some cases there's uh, one fiber may be discolored and there may be a fiber right next to it that's not. Yeah. Which, um, that's kind of an odd characteristic as well. Yes, but to me, the you know, when, when I look at when I try to balance both sides, you know, when you approach the shroud at the beginning, I think the default position should be this is probably a fake because that that just sort of makes sense, you know. But when you look at all the data, and you know, if 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 this shroud is authentic, it was there during the time whatever the resurrection was, it was there and possibly 
and show some effects from that. I still think, weighing all the evidence, both sides, I think it makes more sense to say the Shroud was the only witness to the resurrection. Normally, the Jews wanted two and three witnesses um, to something. And, uh, you know, if the, if the pseudonym of Oviedo is, uh, is authentic, that's a witness, and the empty two may be a witness, but the Shroud was really the only, the, the big witness to the resurrection. And I think it makes more sense to say, okay, I don't, I haven't figured out this image completely. I don't know if it's radiation or just a plain old miracle or whatever it was, but I believe it witness the resurrection, I think that makes more sense than some fantastic medieval artist who was able to fool all these people down through the centuries and incorporate all these details that, it's, that we're finding still impossible to this day to duplicate. I mean, I just, I just think that the chances of an artist uh, being able to do that is less than 1%. Yeah, can, can I just pursue that? I, I, I like, I mean, I, I think it was, it was Russ Brewer, I thought it was really clever that the, the shroud was a kind of um, a receipt. I thought that was really good. Um, but this, this witness thing, the shroud is a witness to the resurrection. So who, and people gone on about the Jews requiring two or three witnesses, is that right? Right. It's the Jews who needed them. It's not modern people who have a specific requirement for witnesses. So what I want to know is that if this was a particular Jewish requirement, then why on earth did the Jews, who were definitely trying to prove that Jesus had resurrected, not produce their witness? Because it was an impure object, and if, if they brought it out, they would have been, the trial would have been destroyed, and they could have been arrested and crucified themselves. But this was the, I mean, we're talking the Acts of the Apostles here. They were, they were going around announcing that Jesus had been resurrected. They weren't ashamed of that, and they, weren't, uh, they didn't mind being arrested and put into prison. But they had the opportunity of not just announcing that Jesus was resurrected, but actually producing a witness, and they didn't. Well, they may have, uh, you know, I think DeWesselo feels that um, the uh, appearance to the 500, I think he thinks that that was the showing of the shroud. You know, there's an interesting quote in Galatians, that I think could be a reference to the Shroud. And of course, it depends on what translation you use, but um, I think the New International Version, Galatians 3.1, it starts out something like, oh, you foolish Galatians, um, how are you deceived? And then there's a phrase toward the end of the, of the verse where it says, you who before Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And I found that interesting, because what could that mean in the first century, publicly portrayed as crucified? I think that's a possible reference to the Shroud. Yeah, it certainly sounds good. I'd have to find out what the word for portrayed actually was. I mean, whether it meant that he just announced that he was crucified, or whether there was some image that he produced. You know, things like, it's very easy, these... Uh, translations, you have to go back to the Latin to check it out, really, and the Greek, indeed. Okay. But uh, it might be right, yeah, it's, it's, it sounds sounds impossible. Okay, uh, one thing I, I have for you, Hugh, and my audience will kill me, uh, some of the, the skeptics in the audience want to know about 
Are, are there any anatomical inaccuracies that you think suggest it probably didn't involve a body? So, so you mentioned uh, something about the, the long arms, which is, uh, again, for Tyler B., that's, that's a big one for him. Um, and, and other skeptics mentioned some of these anatomical inaccuracies. So I just wanted to get your take. Do you think there are any examples of these that uh, rule out the use of a human body? And then let's see how Joe comes back. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I can see how, how Joe will come back because, of course, this was the, the problem from the start um, is that although you, you look at the body and think it's great, it looks exactly right. But as a matter of fact, if you look at almost any picture, we have an, a tendency to assume that it's a real, you know, if you look at a, a, a photoshopped person of a person, you have a tendency to assume it, it shows a person, that, a, a genuine person, even though it may have been somewhat manipulated. I know that in the... Um, so during just after the war, 1948, things like that, when they wanted to advertise tights, they would get um, pretty girls wearing tights, and they would make their legs quite ridiculously up to about 20% longer than they really were. But nobody knew that, nobody really appreciated that, because they all looked just, you know, that's very pretty with long legs. Mm. So it's amazing how much a, a, a person looking at a, 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 um, at a picture of a body will... Um, will we'll give it realism on the grounds that that's what a body looks like, so we'll, we'll add bits to it. Um, and, and they don't mind that you, you get fooled by an irregular shape. So the first time, you get someone like Pierre Barbe who looks at the body and says, absolutely perfect in all respects. And then you get um, John Jackson and his team who practiced laying the shroud down over a body, completely flat, uh, lying down on a bench, and they thought that they could get the shroud and it matched perfectly and they did that wonderful shroud with all the little squares all over it to see if they could get the exact distance between the body and the cloth and all the rest of it and then that all worked very nicely until along comes um, dear uh, Isabel Pixek who says no 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 it shows foreshortening the man had his knees bent well no one had thought of that before so you've got picture of uh, uh, Isabel Pixek standing on the top of a ladder, looking down at somebody lying on the lying on the floor with his knees slightly bent and his head a little bit up. And then we discover that that's not doesn't give you a, a sufficiently accurate rendition. So now you've got the Italians who produced all these models recently, with the a person sort of doubled up into a kind of zigzag shape, with his knees high and his his uh, whole of his upper body. Um, lifted up so as to conform with the image on the shroud. So, you know, even the people who believe it was definitely Jesus realize that the image doesn't match what ought to be a straight body lying in a tomb. Okay, uh, and Joe, what, what do you make of some of these anatomical inaccuracies? Uh, are they good evidence that it didn't belong to a body and, and specifically the the long arms is something that'll mean a lot to the audience too so yeah how do you come back on that well i know uh some people have said that uh, his his arms would have been stretched a bit to put put the nails in i don't know about that but um again an analogy um it would be like you know if somebody's diagnosed with cancer and they go to 10 dif different doctors and they get 10 different treatments, um, the fact that those treatments differ, that the doctors think something will work, that doesn't 
uh, take away the fact that you got the cancer. Hmm. You know, so I mean, you you might uh, I I will I'd be surprised if you know all the doctors that looked at it agreed on a hundred percent of of the characteristics that they're seeing. That that's just not going to happen. I think the bottom line is whether there's a dead body there or not as opposed to an artistic image. And again, I, you know, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think the weight of the evidence of the medical opinion of people that have studied, and let's, let's be clear, the, the shroud is probably the most intensely studied artifact in human history, not just relic, artifact in terms of the number of hours people have put into it. I think this is a, as of a few years ago, I think uh, John Jackson had spent in his own life at least about 40,000 hours studying the Shroud. And you see, you know, you see all these other people that have studied it 40 and 50 years. You know, and the Sturp team was, were people that worked in the space and nuclear programs. I think those guys were bright enough that it was, if it was an artistic image, they would have found out pretty quickly. Barry thought he was going to see the paint and go home in five minutes. Ray Rogers says, I'll have this thing shot full of holes in 30 minutes. Well, here we are, you know, 40-something years later, and we're still debating the evidence. And most, uh, most people that have spent a goodly amount of time on the Shroud, most of them uh, think it's authentic. And I have to say that for most skeptics, and I'm not including you in this group, but I think most skeptics that say it's a fake have an agenda. I think they're, they're afraid, especially if they're atheist or agnostic. If, if the shroud's authentic, that's going to be a problem for their worldview. Whereas Christians, um, maybe a few people go overboard with it, but most people would not stop becoming Christians if they found out the shroud was a fake. So I think most of the skeptics that come at this have an agenda where it's just a, it's an icing on the cake sort of thing for, for most Christians. Gotcha. Perfect. Um, okay, and just before we close out, so is, are both parties happy with the coverage of that topic, or does anyone have any last words on this? No, I'm, 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 I'm happy to go along. I'll just say one thing, and that is, I agree with, with what Joe's just said. I think a lot of skeptics probably do have an agenda. Although, to be perfectly honest, there aren't a lot of us, um, as far as I know. Presumably, most skeptics don't study the Shroud in the first place. Um, but, uh, no, I would say, I mean, Joe was saying that, as, as, of having considered all the evidence, as far as he's concerned, based on weighing it all up, he's convinced that the Shroud is authentic. And I really respect that. There's nothing wrong with that. And I've never stopped, you know, I've never tried to say that people are idiots or, or that, that, that they were wrong or, well, I said they were wrong, but, you know, I don't, I don't condemn their beliefs. Uh, he's dead right. There are lots of people who think exactly that. I'm just one of the ones that doesn't. I liked Barry, um, is always, often quotes the fact that somebody comes up, came up to him at the end of a lecture and said, Mr. Schwartz, you'll never persuade me that what you say is true. Hmm. And he just goes, well, I'm sure he said this on, um, on your show when he was here. He did, yeah. He says, do you think I care what you think? <laughs> I don't yeah. want to persuade you. I just want to tell you what, what the facts are, and you can make it up for yourself. You can decide for yourself. Um, and, yeah, I'm very happy to tell people what I think, but um, far be it from me to tell everybody else that what they think is, uh, uh, no, they shouldn't be allowed to believe it. 
Perfect. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think that basically covers the the entire show there and all three of the the main topics. Um, hopefully, uh, both guests were were happy with the conversation. Yeah. Perfect. More thing. Uh, yeah, Joe. Yeah, go ahead, Joe. Uh, at the beginning, I forgot to mention uh, I did write a book in um, 2011 called uh, "Wrapped Up in the Shroud: Chronicle of a Passion." That's that's a, I like puns, so that that's a pun. It means it refers to me uh, metaphorically and to Jesus uh, in actuality. Perfect. And I, um, and and just for the audience, I I have a that'll be in the sources. There's a link to the Amazon. Uh, thing to get the book there. So yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, and I was also going to say, if you, uh, if, if you have the link there, it probably doesn't matter. But for some reason, if you look at, up under Amazon under my name, it won't come up, but it does come up under the title. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Um, so yeah, hopefully the the audience enjoyed that, and uh, yeah, have, have a good week, everybody. Uh, thanks for being on, guys. Okay. Cheers. Thank man. you. All right. Bye bye, everyone.